This podcast was proudly brought to you by the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. ACNEM is a non-profit medical college offering postgraduate training and education for doctors and other graduate healthcare professionals. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me on the line today is Rebecca Hughes. Rebecca's been involved in the natural health industry for over 12 years since completing a Bachelor of Naturopathy in 2003 at Southern Cross University. In addition to private practice, Rebecca has previously acted as a regulator of medicines at the Therapeutic Goods Administration, TGA, and managed a government project funded by the Commonwealth National Health Department and Medical Research Council to create clinical guidelines for health professionals. She has also peer-reviewed naturopathic academic texts prior to publication and authored four chapters for the current edition of a popular reference text, Herbs and Natural Supplements, an Evidence-Based Guide, which is a seminal book that every natural health practitioner should have in their clinic. Currently, she balances her client time with teaching in naturopathy and nutrition bachelor programs at Endeavour College of Natural Medicine, Melbourne. In late 2014, Rebecca conducted a clinic-based prevalence study measuring the prevalence of metabolic syndrome in a standard clinic population. The results of this study were presented at the 2015 NHAA International Conference. Rebecca is particularly passionate about helping people with acne from her own personal experiences with this as a young adult. Now a naturopath specialising in acne treatment and other skin conditions, Rebecca is having incredible results treating acne sufferers by addressing the hormonal causes of the acne and is dedicated to returning self-confidence to teens and adults. Rebecca, welcome to FX Medicine. Thank you, Andrew. I've got to say, I am extremely impressed by your acumen, but also your care, because, you know, when a practitioner has you know, a certain condition, that personal experience, it really builds a fire to to become expert in it. And, and I can see that you have done that because I, I've met you and you have an extremely beautiful complexion. So it's obviously worked. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I guess first, tell us about your background and why was it, apart from this personal journey, why specialise in skin? What was it that attracted you to it in naturopathic care? Well, I think sometimes things and areas of clinical practice choose you. I'm not sure that you always get the benefit of choosing them. <laughs> and um, I, I originally were, I was seeing a lot of children with eczema mm. and then adults with eczema as well with really chronic eczema. And, and I suppose that started to develop my interest in treating skin conditions. <clears throat> and of course, I did have my own personal experience with a skin condition as a young person and it wasn't until I started treating a couple of people with acne that I saw that actually it's it's not I, I it's easy for me. <laughs> it's easy for me to treat acne, but it's also um it's such 
rewarding work and I, I just really want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about it today because acne has been recognised as a chronic disease mm. and the mental health impairment scores for acne sufferers are as high if not higher than for psychiatric or conditions or chronic diseases wow. like epilepsy and diabetes. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's an enormous effect on people's um, mental health as well as their physical health. They yeah. have higher rates of depression, anxiety and suicidal ideation um, and they have higher unemployment rates Gosh. than people without acne. So the... The effects are far-reaching. It's just—it's not just the skin condition, <clears throat> and that's um, that's why I I really love treating it, and I really want to give people a sense of—I was going to say hope, but hope even seems insufficient. But actually, there is a solution mm. to the acne, and there's a solution without the use of the, what I believe to be fairly harmful prescription pharmaceuticals that are generally used to treat acne. Yeah. Well, they're pretty well known to be harmful, particularly in certain populations. But what I find is really interesting is I met a dermatologist and the stand, one of the standard frontline um, prescriptions for acne is low-dose antibiotic, um, mm. working as an anti-inflammatory, not so much an antibiotic. Now, yeah. that's in an infective situation, i.e. it doesn't reach a minimum inhibitory concentration, an MIC. That is not to say that it's not wrecking your microbiota, um, mm. which is another argument totally. Um, but yeah. I, what I thought was interesting is this dermatologist was actually saying, oh, no, I don't like the use of long-term antibiotics because blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, mm. what? Where has this awakening come from? <laughs> it's really strange. Yeah. But that, that really amazes me. I do remember, you know, my, my old nerdy, uncomfortable, angsty high school days and I had acne and I, I was a shocker for picking them and, and I remember the inner dialogue and I, 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 by no means did I have the worst acne. There were people with much more cystic acne than I and I, I understand that, that real judgment that people have because mm -hmm. it's the first thing you look at as a species. You're identifying as one of your own species. And when you see a wolf or a human and you see that, that human who looks different, you want to analyse it to make sure everything's okay. So I can fully understand that that would really play havoc on one's self-esteem. No, that's, well, that's just why I do what I do. It's not just, obviously, it's to get rid of, yeah, you want to resolve the acne, but it's really what the acne is causing in other spheres of life that mm. is actually the impact. You know, there's sometimes there's pain associated with the acne. Not everyone has pain, but some people have pain. Wow. But, but it's more the, the psychosocial, emotional impacts that, um, that concern me. Mm. So, so take us through the different forms of acne because I'm, I'm going to sort of guess here that there's a lot of interplay. Okay, well, I'll talk about the different presentations. Presentations, sorry. And some people have fairly superficial lesions where it's mostly papular or pustular, um, and that's the extent of the, the depth of their acne. It still can be quite diffuse, like it can be, you know, all over their face or you can get papular pustular acne on um, chest. It's very common as well. Mm. And then I would say the, the next level in severity of acne is 
nodular acne, which is, I suppose, commonly called cystic or hormonal acne, where the um, the lesions themselves are much more inflamed and enlarged um, and they take much, much longer to resolve and they can leave greater scars. And nodular cystic acne, I'm not going to say absolutely, but typically it appears to be around the lower area of the face, the jawline, the neck um, and shoulders and back. That tends to be the location of, of that type of acne. And then there's, I mean, there are acne severity rating scales. There's very various different rating scales based on the number of comedomes or lesions, and and you know, and that's more used. I guess those severity rating scales are used a lot in clinical trials to determine selection of of um, participants in trials. There are two more conditions that start with the name acne. So acne rosacea, mm-hmm. which isn't really related to acne vulgaris. So acne vulgaris is the one that I previously described. Acne rosacea, look, the jury's still pretty much out on what the 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 pathophysiological cause of acne rosacea is, but that tends to affect more so blood vessels. Yeah. And um and it can there can be small pustules that are associated with acne rosacea, but it's it's certainly quite distinct from acne vulgaris. And then there's another condition called uh acne inversa. And it's probably called that because the full name is really long and complicated, which is hydrodentitis suppurativa. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is confusing. (laughs) (laughs) And they are, uh, yeah, well, they're they're large boils that appear mostly in the genitourinary area in the groin and can be in the armpits as well. And suppurativa meaning that ultimately they burst and suppurate, and so they're highly... Um, inflamed, painful and infective and can leave very large scars. And that particular, and again, that condition isn't related to acne vulgaris, but I guess it was, you know, likened to acne because of the the suppurating nature of it. But it also comes with its own degree of, as you can imagine, psychosocial impact and sexual dysfunction because of the location of the, the lesions. Yeah. Um, so can I briefly ask, I know this isn't the main point of our topic, but acne yeah. inversa, pathophysiology, is that an infective agent or an immune-mediated disorder? It's multifactorial, and I think the traditional pharmacological treatment gives you an indication of that. And it's some, some fairly, again, heavy-handed pharmacy that's used like um, immunosuppressants, so right. chemotherapy, essentially, Um And prednisolone and again long term antibacterials. Um, So that 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 type of medication is used. Having said that, I have only I I don't know that people with acne inversa treat seek out naturopaths. I think they should Mm -hmm. um, because I've only treated one patient with acne inversa and I got a really fantastic result with quite a foundational naturopathic approach. Let's say yeah, wow. (laughs) So. So I don't think again, and because the the ultimate treatment in acne inversa is actually surgical, yeah, which is um, extremely invasive, mm. you know, extremely invasive, but um, probably more concerning is the use of of immunosuppressant therapy. I think, uh, yeah, long term, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So back to acne vulgaris. Mm. 
Take us through the underlying pathophysiology, the underlying um, factors. Well, it is. I think it's a multifactorial disease that does have several risk factors. Now, it's it's a disease of the pilosebaceous unit, which is a you know a fancy name for the hair follicle, basically. Mm. And the hair the hair follicle has a sebum sac attached to it, and what happens in acne in in any kind of acne vulgaris is that um, there's a hyperproliferation of keratinocytes that forms a plug combined with the sebum of the hair follicle, and that forms a nice environment. Well, it becomes inflamed, and then the inflammation may or may not become an environment for bacteria, and and essentially, and so then the it can become a nodule or a pustule or a papule, depending on the severity of the inflammation and infection at the site. So that's what happens, essentially, structurally. But in terms of what causes that to happen, I think that there are many factors that cause that to happen. And I also don't think that they're the same factors in every single person who has acne either. And and unfortunately, I think that's the way it is treated, that all acne is the same. And there's plenty of... Um, plenty of literature about propionibacterium acnes mm. or P. acnes as the causative agent, hence the long-term antibiotic therapy. Um, but I think that's an overly simplistic way of regarding the human microbiome because the microbiome on the outside of our body is just and equally as complex as the microbiome on the inside of our body. Yes. And... Um, I think P. acnes constitutes less than 6% of the microbiota on, on our skin. Ah. So if there is an imbalance in the populations of P. acnes, then I think the question to ask is why is there an imbalance of that bacteria on the skin? Yes. Um, and I think one of the issues with, with acne sufferers is that there's a tendency to over-cleanse and overwash and... Um, particularly with antimicrobial agents. So that would be causing an imbalance of microbiota. But P. acnes is considered to be a commensal bacteria when it's in normal populations, but I think it's when it exceeds that limit that it's considered to be pathogenic. But that's the same with with many bacteria. Well, yeah. So, yes. Um, I mean, the bacteria is there and it is considered to be one of the causative agents, but... There's also the what causes there to be excess sebum production. Well, that can be um, androgens, um, but androgens can be activated by, um, as I saw in one, there's a very, very good paper published recently, um, dietary glycemic factors, insulin resistance, and adiponectin levels in acne vulgaris. And it's probably one of the more convincing papers around glycemic index and glycemic load and its effects on acne. Yeah. Because prior to this, there have been a number of reviews done, but they've all been inconclusive, saying that there's really no... They, nobody could really say when they combined all the data that there was any impact from of diet on acne. Um, but this paper showed that irrespective of... of um, serum glucose, serum insulin insulin-like growth factor, with all those being the same between the match controls and the study participants, that glycemic load and glycemic index diets were higher in the acne group. Right. 
No, it was a small cohort. It was only 50 people of, of acne um, of acne sufferers. So I think that, you know, you'd need a higher-powered study to really show. But that that was interesting, yeah. I thought. And But at the same time, having treated quite a few people with acne by now, I would say, again, it's not absolute. I have patients who I treat who have better diets than I do. And I'm a naturopath and a nutritionist, and they have the cleanest diet and lifestyle and still have cystic acne. So I don't think you can sort of put all people into the same box, so to speak. And this is the and problem with medicine when you're looking at a population level is hmm. it's it's kind of like saying probiotics for antibiotic-associated diarrhoea generally fail. But then, well, that's probiotics, not probiotic, not strain, not species, not there's no delineation. It's probiotics. So, you know, Jason Horlack will argue that vehemently, that it's strain-specific. Mm. Um, you can't necessarily say the attributes of one or the successes of one strain would negate the failures of another strain and, and end up with a, a generally positive aspect um, on any sort of given... Now, that's in probiotics. Take acne... Mm. And you've got all these multifactorial issues going on. How do you then tease that apart and lump them all together and say, see, it's not related to diet? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember this exactly. argument in, I think it was in Medical Journal of Australia, and they were saying um, diet has no part to play in acne. Boom. And then not one month later, uh, sorry, guys, <laughs> diet is important <laughs> in acne. <laughs> it, was, it was just, it was seriously within a month. Well, and I think what and what I've been exploring in my clinical practice is um, the hormonal drivers for acne, because most acne happens at adolescence. Yeah. It starts it starts during that time, or if it doesn't start during that time, it happens during another pivotal time of hormonal development in someone's life. And I, you can probably only say that for women, because for some women, their acne only starts maybe post-pregnancy. Right. That's, a, that's another time in a woman's life when acne can start. It's usually much more transient. Mm. But I think when you, can, when you can identify that the acne has started during hormonal development is has cyclical aggravations that are coincident with the menstrual cycle is, may or may not be relieved by the oral contraceptive pill. I think you can safely say that there's a hormonal driver mm. at play, mm. even if you don't know what the hormonal driver is. Mm. Um, so, yeah, what I've been exploring as, a, as one of the primary tools beyond the foundational naturopathic treatment, and I can talk about that in more detail as well if you like, but yeah. I've been using urinary dried hormone testing yeah. as, as my main tool and for identifying exactly what those hormonal imbalances are. And I've found it to be extremely specific um, an extreme and an extremely valuable clinical tool because once I've done the foundational work, then I can really hone in on what precisely is driving this situation. What is the hormonal imbalance, and how can I correct for it? And that's what's getting the the lasting results. Okay, can I ask you a mm. question on that hormonal measurement? Are you mm -hmm. measuring hormones in the system? as in production, or are you measuring metabolism by biotransformation? And indeed, you can go back into reabsorption there, I guess. Um, like, you know, the, the interplay of the gut. 
Um, which yeah, one are you metabolism measuring? Metabolism and, and biotransformation. Gotcha. So you're looking at at the hormonal, but specifically the estrogen metabolites. I'm looking at estrogen metabolites, testosterone metabolites. Oh wow! And surrogates for progesterone because progesterone itself yeah transfers. There is no yeah, um, and it's particularly useful. And these are the patients that come to me with their blood test results. Yeah. And say, the blood tests have been done. See, there's nothing wrong. There's, it's all normal. Yeah, it's all normal, quote, unquote. Yes. D- depending on if you're looking and- right rather than left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I'm finding... And look, but these test methods were developed originally for... To predict... I think they were originally developed to detect breast cancer yeah. risk. Yeah. They were looking at estrogen metabolites, 16-hydroxy and 2-hydroxy ratios to as a predictor for breast cancer. Mm. But I think that they can be applied in many areas of reproductive life, not just whether someone's at risk of a hormone-dependent cancer oh, yeah. or not. Yeah, I think we, mm. we've got to pay homage to the job of estrogen, and that is to proliferate. And so it's mm. great for skin to make it plump and plush as long as it's controlled well. It's great yeah. for fertility. It's great for bone and cardiac health as long as it's metabolised right. <laughs> um, and it's protective um, as long as it's metabolised right. So, I, I, I mean, I'm really interested in um, the hormonal metabolism aspects. Um, I think it was um, at least one of the early players was um, H. Leon Bradlaugh and Firestone. Um, there's a few others, but um, Eleanor Rogan, I think, came in a little bit later, but there's, there's quite a... Um, uh, quite a few of these early players. What was the other one? Zoo and Connie. <laughs> I'll always remember these I'm not guys. Sure. <laughs> yeah, um, but they looked at a, a myriad of these um, estrogen metabolites in. I think it was Carson Genesis, nineteen ninety eight. Yes, I am weird. Mm. Um, and, <laughs> um, but there was still conjecture as to how relevant it was for to predict breast cancer, given that there's so many other players. Um, in, in the causal sort of, um, in causation of breast cancer. But I think it's really interesting what you're doing because you're now looking at detox. So you're now looking at how the body handles things once they've done their job to get rid of them. Mm. So that's very interesting. Yeah. Which is why the beginning of my treatment is generally all about how are the organs, how are the organs and systems like lymphatics, um, digestion, liver, gallbladder, kidneys, are they all doing the job that they should be doing? Yeah. And how is the, the health and the integrity of the digestive system? Is there inflammation? Is there dysbiosis? There is, and I've got to say, like there's a lot of dysbiosis in people who have acne because most, almost all of them that have at one point done long-term antibiotic therapy. Yeah. It's yeah. very unusual to find someone who comes to me who hasn't gone part or the whole way down the orthodox route. And I, I really wish people would come to me first so that I didn't have to do all the corrective work because then I have to correct for a lot of damage that's been done as well as support normal, healthy detoxification and metabolism. Yeah. So can, and, can I ask you a question yeah. there? Do you find that the, what, 14 species that we have available as probiotics in Australia, 
And given that most of them are based, not all of them, but most of them are based on milk products, that's sort of where this premise of probiotics sort of came from. Mm. Do you find they're enough? Enough for? To help correct dysbiosis. Or do you have to employ plant-based material in diet and indeed herbs um, to help correct dysbiotic um, pictures in in people with acne? Oh, I almost always prescribe prebiotics at the same time, Uh either in... I might do it in medicine for the the first few steps to make sure that we get... I mean, ultimately, you want the best value out of your probiotic. Mm, Yes. (laughs) So... So you want to be having adequate prebiotic sources as well as probiotics. And if I'm, if the diet quality is quite poor, then I might supplement with prebiotics until I've done the educational work to improve diet quality. And so I just use, you know, simple things that might be like, you know, gua gum, slippery elm, pectin, things like that. They're they're, they're pretty basic yeah. and in combination with the probiotics. But I also use, not that this is related to dysbiosis, but it's more about digestive integrity. I also use lactoferrin ah, if yes. there is significant inflammation. And, and you can tell because some people's acne is, and this again, it's looking at the presentation and not treating it all as the same. Like some people's presentation is highly inflamed. Like the acne is, really red and in fact all their skin is really red even the areas that don't have the acne and so it's obvious that there's inflammation present and when there's that degree of inflammation present um you can extrapolate and say that well the digestive tract isn't you know doing as well as it could yeah um and then and then for some people it's not so i may not use lactoferrin because lactoferrin is uh, a reasonably expensive product so I don't want to use it with everyone if they don't need it. Mm. But if there's significant inflammation, then I use lactoferrin and maybe saccharomyces boulardii. And But if there's not, then I'll focus more on um, large bowel health yep. and ensuring that there's adequate, um, yeah, adequate digestion. Because I, I do find that there's, and there are some papers actually linking, there's sort of this, whole of theory, gut, brain, skin theory and yeah. saying, and and, to, and the, I think I read a paper that, and it was not looking just at acne, but all seborrheic skin conditions and saying that, I think they estimated that about two thirds of people with seborrheic skin conditions had a pre-existing um, or concomitant digestive disturbance. Uh-huh. Like, for example, irritable bowel-like um, picture. And I think it was, now it was in a Chinese population, but it was about twenty thousand people that they surveyed. So it was a good, it was a it was a good cohort. Uh, so that there is possibly some, you know, something linking, you know, digestive health uh, fundamentally with yeah. acne. Yeah. But again, as a naturopath, I don't make absolutes. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask though? You know, um, I've had rather dramatic results of using cold colostrum with um, um, vulvovaginous candidiasis and, and um, bacterial vaginosis. Um, mm. 
Now, given that that's the other end of the body and given that you, you know, normally, unless you've picked the pimples um, or the acne, there's normally a layer of skin on top. Have you ever used things like lactoferrin, probiotics or indeed colostrum topically? No, I haven't used them topically, but I'm keen to. I'm very keen to start using probiotics topically. There aren't a lot of actual, there's nothing really available in Australia as a as a skin. You know, that's been formulated as yeah. a topical preparation. Yeah. But um, there are overseas. Yeah. There are internationally. And I am um, keen to start using that. Cool. Because the, even in uh, even in 1930, there are a couple of dermatologists called Stokes and Pillsbury who all the way back then, they, they were the ones that sort of came up with this gut-brain-skin theory and they started using and supplementing with just, you know, not even strains, just species of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium and cod liver oil. Can oh, you believe it? Really? Wow. And, and they were getting great results. But it, unfortunately, when they were doing this and developing this theory, it was during a particular trend in dermatology away from autotoxicity. Yeah. So they just weren't given any airtime, really. Right, right. <laughs> And so they were using that, and um, and apparently there's a strain in most yogurt. The second part of it is Thermophilus. Streptococcus thermophilus. Thermophilus. Yeah, that um, increases ceramides when it's applied topically. Ah, right. Yeah, so you could get your tub of yogurt out and... Try it on your face. Well, it's just, I mean, this is one of these things. You know, we find these old grandma's tales. You know, <laughs> this is the, the thing that I say a little bit glibly, but with some air of, of um, meaning, and that is these old wives' tales only remained old if they worked. Mm. Otherwise, they wouldn't get told again. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Um, now, I was going to ask you about about um, creams with regards to or, or topical treatments with herbs. Do you tend to sort of favour tropo-restorative herbs or do you use astringent-type things like witch hazel at all? Or, you know, what do, what do you do there with treating acne? Do you know, I use very, very few topical applications. Oh, right, okay. I, I, I use barely any. Yeah. I mostly treat from... I mostly treat internally. So okay. the... Um, I treat with uh, herbs that have depurative, alterative, hepatic, lymphatic actions. Yep. So things like, you know, Berberis aquifolium, Actium lata, Rumex crispus, uh, Gallium aparine, um, Phytolacodicandra, Echinacea calendula, those types of actions yep. that I'll use internally to enhance all of those organs of detoxification that I talked about before. Uh, I will use reasonably high dose vitamin A and zinc um, to enhance innate immunity and also to speed up skin healing time because both of those nutrients are important for new epithelial growth. And let's face it, people with acne don't want slow epithelial growth. They want fast epithelial growth and repair. Yes. Now, this is an important point because it seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? You, you know, you see, you see a tumorous type look and you go, yes. ooh, inhibit that, you know, um, yes. and yet, you know, vitamin A um, can help to slow down the pro hyper proliferation of, mm. of certain disorders. 
um, when it's used in massive, massive amounts, but indeed you use vitamin D and it has other mm. actions as well. Well, yeah, it has actions on innate immunity. It reduces sebum production and it helps build new skin cells, new mm. healthy skin cells. Mm. So, and, so that's, and it also is important for building, rebuilding digestive integrity. So, and, and so ah, is zinc. Yes. So it has a beautiful dual action. Yes. And um, in terms of topical, look, I find, look, uh, mostly people are already putting too much stuff on the outside of their skin already. Usually it requires me taking things away and saying, okay, yeah. maybe stop using the antibacterial soap on your face or stop using proactive or, you know, wh whatever they're, they're currently using. And um, I might... I might refer them to someone, like I have worked with dermal therapists in the past um, or, you know, beauty therapists who are actually, um, who actually just specialise in treating acne. So there's a couple of people I work with. Um, so I may do that. But I find that there isn't necessarily, I mean, I could use things like calendula creams, for example, just to, to soothe the area. Yeah. I have, sometimes I use, um, well, there's a little bit of evidence that Chinese licorice and coptis are ah, quite good yes. for the anti-inflammatory. And but it, again, it's working on that antibacterial theorem. And I'm not—I've got to say—and I think it's probably pretty evident from the way I speak—is that I'm just not sold. Yeah. On the. I'm with you. That it's that it's to do with too. It's like, oh, this individual just has too much propionibacterium yeah. acnes. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, what about toxins? Uh, you know, we've spoken about hormones and they can be a toxin, but what about things like the POPs, the persist persistent organochlorine pesticides and other toxins? I mean, certainly I do take note of my patients' lifestyles, um, what their occupations are, what their occupational exposure is, where they live, etc. And, you know, we, we try and clean that up as much as possible. Now, some of my patients are adults and are highly coachable. Some of them are teenagers and want to be teenagers. So there's also the balance of where, what stage of change your patient may be at. Um, I almost always encourage all my patients, whether I'm treating them for acne or anything else, to be eating an organic diet, so at least that they are reducing their exposure to those types of chemicals as much as possible. The test that I do does test for um, bisphenol A because it's a known uh, right. fairly potent xenoestrogen. Yep. So I think that's very helpful, but it doesn't test for any others. Yeah. Um, and normally I find that people are within range. I only just had a patient recently who was disturbingly well outside the range and I'm not – she's a hairdresser, so I suspect it has something to do with the chemicals that she's exposed to at an occupational level yep. daily. Yeah. Um, but I'm yet to figure out what, where, where it's coming from in her, um, in her lifestyle. That really high bisphenol A, because that's, that's disturbing. Yeah, yeah. And and what about things like skin types? You know, we're well versed with skin types with regards to how well we're going to metabolise vitamin D in exposure to sunlight. We're well versed mm. with skin types with regards to skin cancer risk. But what about acne? Yeah, I think it ties into genetics, but genetics at the hormonal level. And almost always when I take someone's case history, mm. they, they may or may not have a relative with acne, but there'll be some sign of another hormonal disturbance. For example, right. 
um, recurrent miscarriages, infertility, um, oh. prostate disease or breast cancer. So there's some indication in their family of a trend toward a hormonal disturbance. And, of course, constitutionally that will show up in different people in different ways. Yep. Uh, so, and that's why I don't like to – the reason why I test is because I don't like to assume what – the imbalance is, and I think there's definitely, and it's, it's pervasive in the literature, that all hormonal-dependent acne is androgen-driven. Right. And it's all related to polycystic ovarian syndrome, right. and it's androgen-driven. Right. And my, the tests of the patients that I've done would indicate that that is not the case. It is not the case. And, in fact, I have women who have high estrone at the same as ha- time as having high testosterone. Ah, okay. And so I work on both of those pathways at the same time. Right. And I can even test for cortisone and metabolite. Like I can test for cortisol and metabolize cortisol as well, which is also valuable because one of the risk factors that we do know is that stress activates localized androgens because there's um, androgen receptors in the skin and then that increases sebum production. Right. So looking at what someone's cortisol picture, I find is also kind of handy because you don't always, some patients are very, very adept at um, presenting as cool, calm and collected when that's not what actually is happening. Yeah, yeah. The silk iris. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And... Yeah, so that's why I I can't remember if I've answered your question or not, but... um, that's why I find the testing very valuable. I think the lesson I'm learning from you is stop assuming that you think it's all one, that, you know, we've yeah. really got to individualise treatment. And I've got to say, it's it's really impressing me. <laughs> um, so mm. I've got to ask, what about um, if you're talking about a localised stress response in the skin, couple mm. of questions from that, you know, sweating, uh, you know, some people say sweating is really good because it's a it's an excretory organ and therefore it's good. And yet, I've seen acne that has been really exacerbated by sweating. But I wonder about oh, the okay. type of sweating. The other thing is, though, also some people get acne in their acne gets worse. So they've already got acne, but their acne gets worse in locations where there's clothing um, rubbing right. in a particular place. So, for example, cats. Uh, yeah. Caps across foreheads, I notice, is a place where um, in men, that if men would seem to wear caps more, um, that their acne can become worse in that location. And so, and because they might be wearing a cap while they're playing tennis or something, for example. And so there's perspiration and oils and friction and heat at the same time. So I guess it's just, you know, your typical inflammatory response but the thing is you're aggravating an area that's already aggravated yeah yeah so that might be that might be the answer to that i'm not sure um and i suppose if lymphatics and hydration yeah would play a big part so i i do think perspiration is good and movement is good Mm. for anyone who has a skin condition because of course the lymph doesn't move itself the lymph needs you to be um active for it to move and it also needs you to be well hydrated yep and I think both of those factors are very useful for people who have skin conditions because the, the lymph serves a function. You know, it serves a function of removing 
debris and waste, but it's also part of our immune system as well. Absolutely. What about, therefore, when somebody's got that, you know, cystic acne on the middle of the cheek area, um, mm. you know, what about mobilising? I'm not, not, not necessarily formalised massage, but just mobilising that area. Um, does that help in any way or is there no great, you know, um, measurable benefit there? I can't see that there would be a measurable benefit because you might actually um, aggravate. Mm. Now, having said that, quite a few of my patients do go in on their own accord to have what's called an extraction facial. And an extraction facial is exactly what it sounds like. It's where comedones are removed, but... But at least, look, I'm not opposed to them because at least they're done under sterile conditions. Mm. So the person who does them does them with sterile instruments under sterile conditions. And most people with acne will pick their acne. Yep. And they won't do it under sterile conditions. And they'll trauma the area by squeezing and pushing and you know, doing, doing whatever else they can to try and get the, you know, to remove the comedome. Whereas I figure if they're going to do it anyway, they might as well do it in a controlled environment. Yeah, yeah. We've spoken about movement, and if you talk about the microbiota, we know mm. that we know that exercise influences our microbiota. Um, it's not just diet; it's also this movement sort of thing. How important do you find these practices are? It's interesting because I don't. A, a lot of the people who come to see me are already reasonably active. Aha. Uh-huh. I have to say, so they're already reasonably active. I tend not to have to um, prescribe that, mm-hmm. to be prescribing movement. Yep. Um, I find the area that I have to focus on on a lifestyle perspective, particularly with some women, is anxiety and stress management. Right. But that's, um, I find it a much bigger player, not just in their acne, but in their overall health and well-being. But yeah, like I said, cortisol is going to increase sebum production, but it also um, does have an effect on uh, our microbiota as well, and then our microbiota runs us. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so if you're not um, managing that side of things at the same time, then I suppose you're only going to get maybe you, maybe the results won't be as as long lasting mm. if there's still that background of anxiety and stress and sometimes the anxiety and stress is directly related to the acne and and someone's appearance Mm. it can be directly related to that or it might be related to their occupation for example yeah if they've got a if they're in a stressful job so that's what i find i usually am recommending is yeah things like yoga mindfulness meditation um adequate sleep yeah I, I think the entire Western world doesn't sleep enough. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's just those, I guess, those fundamental foundations. And, and, of course, a fundamental foundation. You mentioned it before, hydration. I remember this example, and, and I, you know, it, it was only, an, you know, a, a, an anecdotal report. Um, but with photographic evidence, you know, given that there's some issues around how people light a photo and things like that, but it mm. was it was a very interesting story, if nothing else. And it was a lady who, I think she saw a psychologist, and um, oh, was that in the Guardian? Yes, and yeah, and, I saw that. Yeah, so 
I mean, this was a very interesting story, if nothing else. And and the psychologist um, said to drink a bucket load of water. It was two litres a day, wasn't it? Yeah, at least. Minimum two litres. Right. Mm. And, of course, the woman reported or, or the practitioner reported a dramatic improvement in their um, complexion. What do yeah. you think about that as a, you know, teasing that out from an anecdotal onto what you see in patients? Uh, well, I mean, water is required for everything. It's required to make bile and have good bile flow and then good bile flow and liver function removes hormones, it removes other metabolic waste, water fills up the lymph and the lymph is required for removing waste. It cleanses the kidneys. So we're talking at a at a really naturopathic mm. sort of level of Physiological how level. water is required for everything. You know, so I think if, if someone isn't adequately hydrated, and I do tell my patients this, and it's a good way to get them to be compliant with water, is they go, I'm going to give you herbs that are going to enhance detoxification. If you don't drink enough water... It's coming out your skin. You're going to get an aggravation <laughs> of your acne. <laughs> so, so they they become highly motivated to <laughs> drink two liters of water a day because they don't want their acne to actually get worse. But it but it could it could happen. So do you advocate two liters? Oh, uh, I I don't want less than one point five. Right, gotcha. Yeah, I usually say two because I know that there'll be days where they don't have two and then they might hit one point five. Yeah, and then that's that's adequate. It depends on their level of physical activity though, because some of like some of my patients are really physically active so they're quite athletic in which case i think their water requirements higher yes sure but the, the stratum corneum the very very outer layer of your skin needs both water and fat and in fact over exposure to water so over cleansing showering washing etc removes the water from the stratum corneum and so it actually reduces hydration in the outermost layer, which is why I try and discourage all of the, you know, the, the crazy skin washing that, that does happen with some acne patients because they've been told that it's due to bacteria and too much oil and to wash away that oil, whereas really that oil layer is just as protective. And I think that's another thing that gets missed is the the need to actually have adequate oil and water hydration. So just just in wrapping up, there's two sort of, I guess, base uh, traditional acne treatments. And one of them is the actual essential fatty acids. And the other one mm. that I'm thinking of is the, uh, is the minerals or the, the combinations. Zinc B6, magnesium helps hormonal metabolism. Mm -hmm. But just zinc on its own is, is one of the old fames, you know, for acne mm. with varying degrees of success. How useful do you find them and what dose do you use? Uh, zinc I find incredibly useful and particularly I think in anyone who's had a chronic skin condition, whether it be eczema, acne, psoriasis, zinc is like, I think of zinc like iron, like it gets, it gets consumed and it gets stored mm -hmm. and then it gets utilized. And if someone has had a chronic skin condition, they've had an increased requirement for zinc for a very long time because they've been building more skin cells than a healthy person. They've had to, to keep up. Um, so I find most of the people that I see um, 
uh, zinc depleted, and that's fairly obvious usually from their immune health, right? If, if not from their skin health, yeah. right? They tend to also be predisposed to uh, opportunistic infections, and that tells me that you know that that zinc is depleted. And so I usually prescribe between twenty-five and fifty milligrams. Elemental and yeah, yep. And in a divided dose, typically because I find not a lot of people can handle fifty milligrams in one in one dose because it, it can make you feel a little bit queasy. Yep. Um, but zinc's also useful. It's useful for immunity, skin health, and also for releasing vitamin A from the liver. There's a zinc-dependent enzyme yes, right. that um, helps release your own vitamin A mm. from the liver. That's... So that's also a, the, the dual, again, benefit of taking zinc. Right. That's very useful. Um, well, you need to write a book because this is brilliant work that you're doing. Yeah, look, maybe I do. Maybe I do because I think um, I am very concerned about how people with acne are treated in the common medical model that they – and it's not it's not anyone's fault like i'm not i'm not demonizing doctors or specialists but there really is the sort of one pathway available to people at the moment which is you know they go to their gp because they're concerned and their gp either refers to a dermatologist or starts prescribing themselves but generally the pathway is the same which is yeah. antibiotics roaccutane which comes with its own um raft of well-known side effects yes um, and the oral contraceptive pill if you're a woman. Yeah. And and that's the pathway. And I, I have to say it's unsatisfactory. Mm. And it's unsatisfactory for people because they then they come to see me because it hasn't worked. Um, it's unsatisfactory because of all the side effects associated with those medicines, both short and long-term side effects. Yes, and it, it's unsatisfactory overall. And I'd say, look, I'm going to be so bold as to say that it actually isn't evidence-based. Like even with Roaccutane, when you look at the, the trial participants in those initial um, roaccutane or isotrentinoin, is that how you say trials, they were people with moderate to severe acne. And that's what they're, they're re-looking at all of that data now because they can't understand why people with mild to moderate acne aren't, receiving, aren't experiencing the same benefits. Ah, because okay. the trial participants were completely different. So, of course, they experienced an improvement because anything would have been an improvement if you had severe acne. Yes, that's right. I, Rebecca, I've got to say, I love the way that you've taken what is very often a confounding condition to treat. Um, and it really affects people's psyche, their self-confidence, not just short-term, but mm. long-term as well. But the thing that mm. I love is that you've taken something that a lot of people would go, oh, we have to do these really complicated things, and you're doing it with the naturopathic foundational treatments. And mm. I love it. You know, you're not treating so much the acne as the person in front of you. There, I think you've done extremely well on this, so very well done to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. And, yeah, I, I just really want people to be left with that there is an answer, and it doesn't have to be the answer that is routinely presented to them, that there are there are other opportunities for solving acne and, and solving everything else that goes along with it, with the, you know, you've already touched on it, the self-confidence and anxiety. And I think, I think if you've never had a skin condition, you're not really present to how, how it can be, mm. how it can be personally, like it's a very personal thing 
to have a chronic skin condition, in mm. particular acne, and I think there is a lot of judgment out there. I think people go, oh, people with acne, oh, they eat such bad diets. They should look after themselves better, mm. you know? And it's and that's just and that's no one's fault. That's just like a pervasive sort of judgment, uh, opinion or judgment. But um, you know, people with acne have to deal with their acne as well as people's judgments of their mm. acne. <laughs> so it's you know, it's emotionally really damaging. Yeah, and well, salient and caring words I've got to say, Rebecca. So thank you for joining mm. us on FX Medicine. Thank you. Cheers. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. Registrations are now open for the ACNIM conference to be held in Melbourne on 5th and 6th of May 2018. Joining us today is Dr Christabel Yeo, President of ACNIM and Conference Chair. Welcome Christabel. What can you tell us about the conference this year? Hi Andrew. So this year our conference title is Health for Life, Mastering the Integrated Approach. And uh, our conference program is going to highlight three key areas of nutritional medicine practice, which is metabolism, gut immune access, and healthy aging. And of course, that's going to be covering a wide expanse of conditions and interventions. So what can you tell us about the various aspects of these? For instance, genes, gut, nutrition, and the environment, one of the subtitles. Well, you know, let me tell you a bit about um, the overall conference because we've put this together especially for practitioners who are dealing with patients who are not only worried about advancing age and declining cognition but they also have multiple conditions and we know that all of this does overlap with the gut immune axis, metabolism, oxidative stress and, and essentially healthy aging. So how do we work out their multiple and overlapping risks, triggers? and perpetuating factors and then so ultimately how do we facilitate the optimum health comes in an integrated biomedical approach. So in these themes what we are doing is um, under metabolism we're going to be talking about um, fasting mimicking diets, uh, weight gain, um, mitochondrial disruption or metabolic disruption from heavy metals and uh, under the gut immune um, Axis, we'll be talking about the oral microbiome, hidden food factors in common gut conditions, things that people haven't particularly thought about. And uh, we'll also talk about the active role of um, specific food components on intestinal receptors and immunity. And so with healthy aging, um, we'll be talking quite a lot about genetic influences there, the, how we integrate um, genetics, nutritional and environmental approaches for healthy aging as well as the metabolic aspects of uh, acidosis and then also the mitochondrial aspects of how um, the mitochondrial immunity chronic infection is tied in with healthy aging. Who will be speaking this year? Well we're super excited this year because we have Dr. Robert Roundtree who is a family medicine practitioner from Colorado and a well-known IFM faculty um, medical doctor but really practicing like a naturopathic doctor like many of us nutritional medicine doctors and from America we also have Professor Walter Longo's lead researcher Sebastian Branhorst speaking about the fasting mimicking diet and we have of course our local uh, favorite researchers like Professor Ross Grant 
um, always talking about our topic, favorite topics like the brain and mitochondria. We've got Professor John Tag from New Zealand, a microbiology researcher, giving us more depth on the oral microbiome. We've got Professor Joseph Proeto, an endocrinologist from Melbourne, talking about weight management. And then, of course, we really wanted to integrate having clinicians um, together with our amazing researchers and PhDs. So we have our local fan favorite um, naturopathic educator, Rachel Arthur. We have Denise Furness talking more about genetics. And um, on, the, on the last afternoon of the session, we really want to make it very practical and very clinically focused. So we have other clinicians like Warren McGinn, um, talking to us and Nicole Bilsma bringing in some of the environmental aspects. That's an incredibly impressive lineup you've got. How do people register for this? So to register for this event, go to conference.acnum.org.